Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. Well, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I'm I've been a big fan for a very, very long time, for like 30 years now. <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm excited to have you on. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Finally, uh, yeah, I've been following you a lot on YouTube and other places as well, and uh, you, some of your stuff is very informative. Of course, everybody has different opinions about that, but. Yeah, I think it's you know really good, informative stuff for people who are getting into certain genres of music. So I'm a fan. Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, people definitely have lots of opinions. Uh, well, what what are you up to these days? I know the the band has had some changes in the past couple of years. What's what's going on right now with Fear Factory and anything else you're involved with? Well, I just got off tour with Soulfly. I was. Uh, I oh, re- that's right. Yeah, I did a full U.S. tour. Very successful. Um, nobody got COVID. We're all vaccinated, so we were very safe out there wearing masks, uh, wiping everything down, spraying the dress room before we went to the dress room. Did you wear a photo- backpack on stage in Mark's honor? No, thank you. Not at all. No. no. Okay. I got enough weight to carry. I don't need another backpack. <laughs> yeah, we you know, kept our distance from the fans. We did take photos, but we just didn't touch each other kind of thing. You know. So I think that we were uh, a living testament to what could be done out there and be successful and make it through a tour. During his COVID times, you know, playing with somebody as legendary as Max was an honor for him to give me a call and ask me to do this. You know, of course, you know, he's I've known him for 31 years. Uh, he was the one who pretty much uh, helped solidify a record contract with Roadrunner Records. Oh, I didn't in, know that. Yeah. Back in 1991. Monty Connor was the a guy at Roadrunner Records. Yeah. And we also had a person named Laura Porter who was helping out the band. But it wasn't until Max you know, gave a thumbs up to Monty Connor at Roadrunner and said, you need to sign this band now. And that's pretty much how it happened. Anything to do with him, uh, um, I'm all for it. You know, I'm hoping that we get to do future songs together and maybe do, you know, another album or something together, you know. I've never met him, but I'm a huge Sepultura fan too. And really very, very underrated guitarist too. Yes, very much so. He's a very good, great rhythm guitar player. I mean, he's wrote a lot of stuff uh, through his career and through his life. You know, he's like me. We're both riff machines. We just That's right. keep writing riffs and riffs and riffs. A lot of people think that more notes is the way to go on a record, but sometimes less is more. Pantera's biggest song is Walk. And that's the most simplest song they've ever written. Simplest riff. Two notes, basically, or maybe yeah, three, I guess. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah, doing that tour was great. You know, filling in for Soulfly. Hopefully sometimes I'll get to do it again. But now it's all about Fear Factory. Yes, we've been through a lot of stuff in my career. 
the beginning of Fear Factory, the very, very beginning, we were in a lawsuit with a with a guy named Ross Robinson, which a lot of people might have heard of him. He was uh, pretty much responsible for the sound of new metal, for the production sound of new metal. Yeah, we were friends, you know, way back in the in the '80s, and when I started my band Fear Factory, he uh, wanted to produce the album, but unfortunately, he also wanted to own our songs. So it didn't work out legally. So we completed a record, but it never came out. Fast forward to 2002, it came out called Concrete. But Solvent and Machine was basically our introduction to the metal world. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about there. But the first thing I wanted to ask you about, which I was like really, I guess, happy to see, is the whole uh, the the Cannibal Corpse Courtney uh, Kardashian thing. So for anybody that didn't see it, uh, there's a, a, a picture of Travis Barker with, uh, you know, obviously from Blink-182. I think he's wearing a cramps shirt. And he's, you know, out and about with his girlfriend, Kourtney Kardashian, and she's wearing a Cannibal Corpse Eaten Back to Life shirt. And, you know, all the metal people were angry, including Chris Barnes. And you, like, you were kind of going off for like a day or two about this on Twitter. And I think I really liked what you had to say about it. Can you kind of talk about your point of view on that? Sure. I do understand that people feel like this is their band, their music, their genre. And when somebody else who is not part of the genre and probably doesn't know much about the genre uh, is wearing their shirt, they seem to kind of get offended. And I, I understand, you know, but it's kind of funny because, you know, people who are in the metal genre, especially when I was going through school, you know, we were looked down upon, you know what I mean? People looked down on us. They judged us for what we were wearing the t-shirts we were wearing, the music we were listening to, the people who we hung out with, the stoners, you know what I mean? And people look down at us. And I understand, you know, that some people are still going through that now, but who are we to judge? You know what I mean? We shouldn't be the ones judging them for what they wear. You know what I mean? It's just, you're just doing the same thing that they did to you. Correct. It's kind of like being hypocrites for sure. But I'm for like, hey man, if you really look at it, the Kardashians have probably worn more metal shirts than i've ever worn true you know what i mean i'm talking about the crushes as a whole you know slayer metallica cannibal right. corpse morbid angel that's right you know I mean? there's the picture of kim in a morbid angel shirt one of my favorites yeah they've won they've won iron maiden metallica slayer you know, kanye's the, uh wore that cradle of filth shirt once cradle of filth yep megadeth you know stuff like that and you know they i i understand that they like like what you were saying they like the logos because you know for uh, bands like us and just you know people who are doing this kind of music the main thing for us is merchandise so we want to make our merchandise look as cool as hell look as badass as fuck you know and being able to sell it to our fans you know that you want to give them the best quality print as possible you know what i mean so we really put a lot into you know our artwork you know and and how we market it and how we sell it we put a lot into it and i can understand why you know all those uh, pop artists, that, you know, commercial artists like Justin Bieber and anybody else who's kind of like use those logos or that type of font to make their uh, t-shirts. You know, I could because it looks cool. Would, I can see why they would do it because it would look cool, yeah. Chris. And plus, you know, who? Why not help the genre out? I mean, if it gets, if she's wearing a Cannibal Corpse shirt and it gets, you know, five people who never heard of Cannibal Corpse into it, great. You know, you, and you know it will because how many people got into Cannibal Corpse because of Ace Ventura? A lot. A and lot. I, yeah, a lot. Because millions I, of people saw that movie. And I know that Jim Carrey is aware of that stuff and, you know, probably got him on there because it's pretty humorous, you know, to have a 
a band fucking guttural vocals on yeah. Ace Ventura. I know it's probably more of a comedic thing, but he probably really doesn't know the bands that well. You know what I mean? He probably right. just listened to them at that time just to get them on the movie. And that somebody might've suggested that it was funny. And from your perspective as an artist, you know, you were kind but, of saying like, I'd be thrilled if some celebrity wore a fear factory shirt. Hell yeah. I'd be retweeting that stuff. I'd, you know, put it on Instagram stories, post it, Facebook, you name it. I'd, send it to blabbermouth, whoever I could right. to say, Hey man, you know, Bono's wearing my fucking fear factory shirt. That's cool well, as fuck. You kind of did have a similar moment. Uh, I remember, you know, when you were on the, uh, the mortal Kombat soundtrack, which I thought was crazy. Cause you know, I, I knew you guys kind of as like death metal grind kind of band. And then, you know, you're in this at the time, that was a really big movie. It was um, a very what, big movie. Yeah. What did um, that do for you guys? A lot. Oh yeah. A lot it really took D manufacture to the next level because um, it's funny, but we were kind of like getting our foot into the video game, uh, into the video game world. And we were like, you know, uh, giving um, songs and instrumentals and remixes that we did from, from our previous album and sending them out to movie companies and video game companies and stuff like that. Trying Nobody to get was doing our- that to back then. I mean, these days metal and gaming and stuff, crosses over a lot but not back then yeah and we would try to go to those video game conventions or any of those conventions where we would hand out cds of instrumentals of remixes and all that stuff i just trying to get our stuff in the movies or in video games or just placed where, wherever they would use it to where we can monetize it and make money obviously but so mortal Kombat reached out to us actually they reached out to us and said hey can you write a specific song for the movie so we did it was called self-biased resistor Oh, I didn't know you wrote that for the movie. Wrote that for the movie. It's one of the best Fear Factory songs. Yes, one of my favorites. We wrote that for the movie, but we also finished the record. And they're like, well, we like Zero Signal better. We're like, great. It didn't matter because as long as they took one of the songs. So the song was actually in one of the scenes. It was Johnny Cage and I can't remember, Scorpion were fighting each other. So the, that song came out in the movie and it was great going to the movie theater and being like, fuck yeah, our song, yeah. Was, that scene, hell yeah. So of course we told everybody that we, that we knew about it and it really, that record sold, I think a couple million copies. Damn. And yeah. And it really propelled uh, the record demanufactured to the next level. That is so insane to think of music that sounds like that selling millions of copies. The nineties yeah. were wild. Yeah. And then we started getting into a lot of, uh, you know, the video game industry didn't fully take us on yet, but a lot of computer gaming uh, started taking us on. So we were, we were really getting our foot in that door there. And then we released the remixes of Demanufacture called Remanufacture. And then boom, the video game world just took off. And we actually were making some pretty good income on that. Oh, that- I didn't re- I didn't realize that I wasn't playing a lot of games then. So I think I missed a lot of that stuff. What, what games were, were you in? Don't ask me. There's a list on Wikipedia somewhere. Okay, so a lot. There's a shit ton, yeah. Okay. And were you guys doing that yourselves, or did you have your publisher do that? Or like, how did okay. you actually make that happen? At the time, Roadrunner Records didn't even have a department for that. So we oh, were wow. kind of like doing it ourselves. Mainly our drummer, Raymond Herrera, he really went out. And Raymond from Phobia. Yeah, he played on Phobia Record too. Um, yeah, he went out and really networked that video game world and really got into it. And it basically forced Roadrunner to open a department uh, for that, like a music placement department that would put music, uh, submit music for movies and all that stuff and do the licensing agreements and all that stuff. So, Wow. So you guys kind of showed them the potential of that as a business. Correct. 
Yeah, that's that's it's crazy to think, you know, the things were so different back then that, you know, these days everybody wants placements. I mean, that's like big money. And it's it's crazy to think that that wasn't even on their radar. Yeah, there was a guy named Tony Tellerico. He's a really big uh, video game music composer. and He's done a thousand games anyway. So he uh, one of the think EA Sports had commissioned him to get us into the studio and write like four songs for a video game. So we were doing stuff like that specifically wow. writing songs for video games and that was really fun he was pretty much a conductor telling us what he wanted you know what i mean it was for like a, a driving game and uh you know he was there conducting us and, and it was really cool working with him because i've we've never done anything like that before and it was fun it was a lot of fun um but the most the most uh money that we ever made was for a american express commercial for the song <laughs> cars that was gary oh Newman. right gary Newman cover song cars and that was on obsolete record. And that uh, was the most we ever got paid from anything was just that commercial. Wow. I, I didn't Gary. know that that Plus happened either. Gary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was um, American Express was showing their new, I think it was a business card. It was a blue card. And they did, well, they did stuff for that. And then um, and how, how did that happen? Uh, Roadrunner. They finally, you oh, know, they okay. got the, I think our name started to get out there that we were like good for that. And then obviously, you know, an easy song like cars because it's already been it was already a commercial hit back in 80 81 82 and every once in a while they bring somehow that song gets resurrected with marilyn manson doing a cover or dave grohl or somebody if i was doing a cover and so you know we did it and it just took off so it's it's interesting too because like the music just conceptually makes so much sense for video games especially like those remixes it just instantly makes me think of like twisted metal and stuff you know, such a perfect vibe for that time. Yeah. Um, you know, I think just, you know, the way we were, the way we grew as a band and just the production, the sound, the keyboards, the remixes, it really fit really well with the, with the intense video games. You know what I mean? Whether it's like a, a, a war game or a fighting, not a war game, but like a futuristic kind of war game or, um, you know, a driving game, something that's going fast, you know, it, it always seems to fit. Right. I wanted to ask you about uh, some guitar stuff. Uh, my my sure. good friend uh, Al told me, uh, Al Levy told me I should ask you about one. <laughs> the Metallica song. Yeah, one was, uh, that record came out in 1988. And uh, that there was a particular song, the song called One. And there was a particular part right in the middle of the song where you hear uh, the drums, the kick drums and the guitar riff syncopated together. And it goes. It sounded so fucking cool. That one little piece. It's the only time I ever heard it. Yeah. And any of Metallica records. I was just thinking back then, like, why can't they do more stuff like that? Yes. So by the time 1990 came around, a couple years later, I was like, I need to start a band that's just all that. And that's pretty much (laughs) what I did. Everything's pretty much syncopated. (laughs) Right. I mean, that idea of doing like the chugs with the kick in unison. Like everybody does that now and it seems so obvious, but nobody fucking did that really before you guys. Um, Dark Angel had a little yeah, bit of that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. A little bit of that as well. Um, but but you guys little... just went all in on that in a way that yeah. I don't think anybody else did. Yeah, very few bands had it. And if they did have it, it was just pieces. It was never yeah. like the main focus of a whole album. And with that level of like just super, super, super clear precision that you guys had. Like I love Dark Angel, but they were not as like surgically precise as Fear Factory. 
Yeah, we know I was coming up in the LA scene, a bunch of local bands I was in, you know, grind bands, crossover bands, you know, crossover metal punk type bands. And and even uh, Brujeria was also one of my early bands as well. Um, yeah, which I definitely want to talk about. Yeah, but I wanted to get into something different. And I wanted to do that idea of syncopated kicks and, and guitar. And I needed to find a drummer like that. So one day I met, I met Raymond Herrera and Raymond's like, you're a guitar player. I heard about you. There's a guitar, there's a guy who has a band living across the street. They're called Excruciating Terror. Yes, you should join that. You should join that band. So I wouldn't join the band for a month. We rehearsed across the street from where Raymond lives, and so one day the drummer didn't show up, but Raymond showed up, and the other guitar player said, "Hey, Raymond, why don't you get behind the kit?" So Raymond gets behind the kit. He's like, "I'm like, holy shit, this guy can fucking play." So I literally quit Excruciating Terror. And I convinced Raymond, let's start a band. I did not know you were an excruciating terror. Yeah, literally for one month, I did one show and I okay. quit because I just knew that this wasn't the direction that I wanted to go. Excruciating right? terror is awesome, but pretty gnarly shit. Yeah, I just knew, I just had bigger dreams, bigger hopes, yeah. and bigger ideas, different ideas, you know what I mean? And yeah. so I also had a band with Burton. It was called Ulceration. That was like a total ripoff of Godflesh tuned down really low, you know, just hammering, just, you know, groovy, groovy, heavy riffs, you know, Bert doing that Godflesh type of voice. And I was like, this guy's dope. So when I got Raymond, I said, I got to get Bert in this band. And so that's what I did. And that's how us three got together. And then took that one, <laughs> that song one, that one particular sound. Right. And boom, just ran with it. There was such a cool kind of like grind death metal scene in Southern California at that Big. time, which I, I was sort of, you know, I was friends with Chris Elder from Despise You and Pessimizer. And so he kind of put me onto a lot of that stuff. And I was in high school then kind of watching all this from afar. Uh, but it was such a cool and interesting scene because it had this sort of like really grimy you know, Whittier East LA sort of quality to it. You know, it's like, like a lot of the guys were like, you know, semi gang member type dudes, you know, it's <laughs> totally, just such totally. an interesting vibe. Totally. And a lot of them were gang. gang yeah, bangers, exactly. You know, you, know, you see they, like, they just got the, into the, it. The people that show up to like Fiesta Grande to go see excruciating terror and all the, you know, punk dudes would be like, who the fuck are these guys? <laughs> like, well, this I, safe? Well, I've been to a back, backyard show where I saw terrorizer play. And people doing stage eyes off the roof of the house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't get to see a lot of that stuff, but uh, I, I remember just kind of observing that scene from afar. And it was like, it was really cool. I, I don't know if that still exists, but that was such a cool it moment. Does. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting to me that Fear Factory kind of came out of that because it's, it's almost like the opposite of you guys in so many ways because Fear Factory is so clean and precise and that stuff is just so fucking filthy. Well, we had a lot of influences that pretty much developed our style. I mean, I was trying to copy uh, uh, a sampling machine, you know what I mean? Where you, where you sample the guitar and you loop it over and, and you can mm. hear the guitar truncate and start over. Uh -huh. So I was trying to copy the machine. I was trying to do that. Uh, I was also into techno music because a lot of times we played backyard parties in East LA. Then after the, par after the metal show was over, the DJ would come in and start playing techno. So I started getting into techno and stuff and I was like, that's a cool synth riff. So I was copying synth riffs, you know, but just making them all heavy and brutal that you wouldn't know where the influence came from. You know what I mean? And it's just, right. so we, we, our influences are from everywhere, you know, from, 
everything from Godflesh to techno to industrial to goth to 80s, new wave, you know, all that stuff was happening really big in the late 80s, early 90s in LA. I mean, I mean, you, you had bands like The Cure and Morrissey playing Dodger Stadium. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, that and there's the whole was, like rave, underground rave scene going on then too. Exactly. And all that, all that was one big melting pot of music for us. And we just try to take a little bit from here and there and here and there and just kind of develop our own style. I was kind of trying to warm everyone up here before this interview by explaining some of this, but it's like, it's really hard for anybody who's younger to uh, appreciate how just fucking wildly different early Fear Factory sounded back then, you know, like solo new machine. It just, it didn't sound like anything. It was like alien music. It's, It's really hard to describe that to anybody that, you know, might be younger. But remember, we had a record a year before that that didn't come out till 2002. Yes. That yeah, was which was year. like it was like 1991. It's it's wild to me that Ross did that too cuz it's so uh, you know, he he's not known for doing stuff that's heavy, that heavy and that's like some really heavy shit. Well, going back even further than that, 1987, I had a band called the Douche Lords and we were basically <laughs> lyrically we were we were like the mentors, but musically we were like SOD, totally SOD. And Ross produced that demo as well. Oh, really? Is this uh can I find this on YouTube or anything? Nope. Oh, okay. No, yeah. I will I will put it out eventually, but it's lost on the ether. Well, th- yeah. that's a good time for me to uh, ask you about Brujeria because uh I, I remember okay. that coming out and you know, me being me up here in the Seattle area, a little kid before the internet or anything, like I thought you guys were actually like Mexican drug dealers, and then I asked like Chris Elder about it. He's like, What? No, dude, that's Dino from Fear Factory. <laughs> well, the reason why we took on fictitious characters were, were two, two reasons. We were at KXLU, which is a college radio station here in California. Uh, our friend was a DJ. His name was Adam Baum. His real name is Pat Hood. He was a DJ there. So he invited us to come down for his final Christmas on-air show, right? And when we were there, there was a newspaper that said Brujeria really big, right? And it was uh, Christmas, of, Christmas of 1988. And so we saw this newspaper, it said Brujeria, and it showed all this satanic shit. And for anybody who, who doesn't know, what does that mean? It means black magic. Um, so opposite of Santeria, which is white magic. Um, so we saw this newspaper, it said Brujeria really big. And it was talked about this, this drug cartel that got caught. There were satanic drug lords. We were like, wow. We were so intrigued by the story that actually we were like, we need to start a band called that. So on the air, Adam Baum said, there's a new band. They're based out of Matamoros, Mexico, and they're, they're satanic drug lords and, you know, be on the lookout for their new record, right? Which was all fake because we didn't have a record. We hadn't right. even played a note yet. So we're like, okay, like later that, uh, actually later in December, we're like, after Christmas, we're like, well, we got to get in the studio and record something. So we did. We recorded a first seven inch called Demoniaco. So I was on guitar. John Lepe was on drums, which is Juan Brujo. Pat Hood. He, he, he was in a punk band. You might have heard of them. They were called Down by Law. Oh, okay. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. It was he a very played, non-metal lineup. He played drums and Billy Gould from Faith and More played bass. That's right. And so that was, that was the four members, the four key members. And then we released three seven inches. Before I even before I even put out a Fear Factory record, so and then 
every time we did a Fear Factory record, like when Solve a New Machine came out, um, Brujaria Matando Huelos came out, which is the first record. It means kill whitey, kill white boys. Yeah, what were like, you trying to like? I mean, obviously, like it's politics. funny. It's like it's a funny band, but you were also obviously trying to say something with it. What what was kind of the the I don't want to say serious, but you're trying to do some social commentary there. What was that side of it? Well, it was it was the dark humor. It was the dark humor, and it was all about the California Mexico border politics. Every mayor, every governor has and presidents have tried to use the border in a way to sell their policy or whatever they're trying to do. Trump, obviously, with the wall, you know, everybody's always talked about that, trying to control the border. Then you had the drug cartels trying to control the border as well, because if they control the border, then they can bring their drugs across, whether it's submarines, air, underground, or paying off, you know, paying off uh, cops to, you know, to, to get through the border. So we were just talking about drug politics. Mexicans dealing with white people and drug policy. The intro is a drug deal gone bad. Right. They killed this white guy because I don't know, he didn't want to pay the money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's dark humor, and that's what it was. But later on, it got it got to even more political on the second record called Raza Odiada, which means hated race, because we had a governor uh, meaning governor Chicanos. Yes. Uh hated race because they were hating against Me- Mexicanos and what are Chicanos. And um, so we had a governor named Governor Pete Wilson, and he was trying to pass a law called Proposition 87, where, you know, they're going to pull you out of school, they're going to pull you out of, out of your work, and they're going to deport you back, and blah, blah, blah. So it's very mean-spirited. Very mean-spirited, very Trump. Very, just you know, they, punish, yeah, in, just like, let's, they're let's in punish. Rapists, they're sending in rapists, so they're worse people, blah, 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 blah. And, and think about how many fucking, you know, people that would affect in Southern California. A lot. Like millions. Millions and millions of people. Children. Millions. Yes, you know? exactly. And so it, we looked at it as a very racist way to look at it, you know? So we were like, well, fuck you. This is our record against that. And that's what it's about. So when did people discover that Brujeria was, you know, I'm sure not many people thought you guys were actually like satanic drug dealers like I did when I was 13 or whatever. But when did it sort of get out about your your identities? Um, well, one of the reasons why we couldn't reveal our identities was because Billy Gould was in a very big contract with Warner Brothers where you couldn't do other outside projects. Right. So that's why we we didn't reveal our identities. So everybody had fictitious names and we used, you know, these drug cartel photos of guys who've been in prison, whatever, right? And uh, so that's why we didn't reveal who we were. But people didn't know for a long time because we kind of kept our mouth shut about it. Unless you knew me or, you know, you knew somebody in the band, you know what I mean? Or unless you d- delivered drugs to the studio or something, you wouldn't know, you know what I mean? That's why yeah. Brujo. Yeah, we, uh, we wrote uh, a whole story, right? We didn't do interviews. We just wrote the, wrote the whole synopsis the whole story of what the band was about, who we were as characters, blah, blah, blah. And we sent that to the media and the media was going with that. So yeah. nobody knew. Nobody knew for a while, for a few years. It's such an interesting kind of preview of the era we live in now where people just spread fake news, you know, sort of unquestioningly. It's it, it's like, I don't know if you intended it as like a comment on how to manipulate the media, but it certainly worked out that way. I wouldn't necessarily say manipulate the media. We just wanted to keep our names and our identities, you know, uh, a secret because, you know, because of Billy, you know, it was really right. all a respect to Billy and 
not wanting to get him in trouble, any kind of legal trouble. So we did it. We had fun with it. It was funny. And I think the media loved it because, you know, they kind of went with it. I think they, the media started to eventually find out because the record label people were telling them who it was and stuff like that. Yeah. It's not as dangerous as it seems, you know? And, and I like to say that, you know, Brujeria and Fear Factory were very groundbreaking bands mm-hmm. that we kind of don't get a lot of credit for, um, especially, yeah. especially Brujeria, because, you know, there was really no other band like it or can you well, and also it? Can musically you it was it? really good too like it lived up to the hype yes and the funny thing is, is that we would just book studio time and go and re- write songs like each song maybe took an hour to write you know what i mean and it was just you know working with professional people like billy gold and myself and even raymond herrera when he was in the band um and shane from napalm death when he right. was in the band you know these guys know how to write songs so you know, linking up with those guys, you know, we can write songs on the fly and make it's, it it's cool. so catchy. It's almost like pop grindcore. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? Yeah. I think that's just w- the way I write. I like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for melody. I'm a sucker for a hook. And I just try to make everything I do have some sort of hook bad or good, but you know, uh, just something that you're going to remember. Well, on, on that note, I do hear your name come up pretty often, like in my comments and stuff, as far as, you know, somebody who's, you know, laid the groundwork for a lot of the sound of modern metal. So, you know, I, there's some of that, but I think you're right that, you know, like we were, when we were listening to it in the, in the chat earlier, someone pointed out like, oh, that sounds like Meshuggah. And I was like, you know what? It does. But it was, you know, several years before Meshuggah was Meshuggah. Like they were around then, but they sounded like Metallica then. Yeah, they, their first early records were thrashy. It wasn't until Destroy Race Approve, I think 95. Actually, their record came out about two weeks before our record came out, Demanufactured. I wasn't aware of the band at the time. And I, th- I think a lot of people were not aware of Meshuggah. Yeah, nobody at that was. Time. Yeah. You know, going back to bands like Brujeria, there was not a lot of bands doing metal or grindcore or death metal or even, you know, singing all in Spanish. Right. And putting That's it out true. and putting it out to an American audience. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because we were on Roadrunner Records, you know what I mean? So a lot of white people heard it. They didn't know what, what, it, what the lyrics were about. They right. didn't understand, you know what I mean? And then, and then when they like, found out they either thought it was great or like super offensive and awful. Everybody I know loves it. So yeah, everyone, I, but they, you know, there's, there's some people that I remember, you know, just sort of thinking it wasn't funny and it was racist and it's like, well, I mean, it's try telling them. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So yeah. And then when fear factory first came out, we were definitely, uh, lumped in with all the grindcore death metal bands because that's pretty much what we sounded like but you heard that there was something different in fear factory when it first came out and one of the things that really stood out not just the syncopated guitars and drums but um the vocals you know here mm-hmm. we got you know barney style you know growls mixed in with like you know these beautiful melodic you know gothy type vocals as far as i'm aware that's you know i call that like good cop bad cop vocals as far as I'm aware, that's the the first time anybody did that, at least that I ever heard. I've heard people do like a song where it's all melodic or a song that's all heavy or like somebody will throw in like a midsection where a guy stops and sings melodic for a second. But there's never been the combination of the two really in a song that that is the song. You right. Know what I mean? um, right. Yeah. And I've seen uh, Loudwire, um, they did a documentary where they interviewed all these other artists and a lot of them were saying, they were talking about 1994, that 
they were doing melodic stuff and they did it first and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, hmm, well, you're forgetting Fear Factory. Oh, no. You know? Fear, yeah, I would definitely say it's Fear Factory. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the ways that I think we were very groundbreaking as well. And then, you know, uh, we got a lot of a lot of crap from the death metal grindcore crowd because they didn't really understand the melodic vocals. Because clean vocals are gay. Clean vocals are gay. People still say that today. Yeah. You know what I mean? I know people who purposely try not to do clean vocals, you know, but yeah, we've got a lot of, a lot of crap for that, but at the same time, we've got a lot of attention for it. Mm-hmm. So by the time, um, and then, and then in 1993, we released the remix version of Soul of a New Machine, which was like death metal techno with melodic vocals. Also the, the only, the only other band I can think of that did anything like that back then was Brutal Truth. I think they did like that one song. Um, but that was another one of those things like super, super ahead of its time, which may not seem it, it may be hard to appreciate now what a like kind of wild idea that was to do like techno remixes of these like death metal songs. Yeah. And um, and and uh, it was just an idea that I had just be- because I was into the backyard scene of the backyard DJs playing techno stuff. And I was like, well, I like that stuff, too. What, have, what would it sound like if we combined the two? So uh, Monty Connor at Roadrunner Records introduced me to Reese Fulber, who is the keyboardist of Frontline Assembly. Right. That was the merger between, you know, that's our style, you know, his Mm -hmm. electronic style, our metal style. That was the merger. That was the vision that I had the whole time. And when it, when it worked, we're like, boom, we went right away and did remanufacture. I'm sorry, demanufacture. Yeah. And that was, that was the birth of who, what we became. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, 
You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. You know, I think also an- another really important thing that Fear Factory kind of pioneered was that style of production, like the Colin Richardson kind of mix on there. Like that was uh, one wrong. of the very first, like super, super clean, crisp, punchy kind of mixes the way we think of them now. Okay, you're wrong. Colin Richardson did not mix the record. Who did? We actually fired Colin during the mixing of the record. Who, who mixed it? But because his name is on it, right? Yes, unfortunately. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm not wrong about that, at least. Well, it says produced by Colin. It doesn't say mixed. Got it. Okay. That's it. Um, well, during the, during the mix, uh, we didn't see eye to eye on Colin because he was kind of burying the keyboards. And it just it, it wasn't coming out the sound that we wanted. So Reese Fulber, again, who played all, played all the keyboards on the record, he was like, I know this guy named Greg Greeley who's mixed the Frontline Assembly records. He's mis- mixed a bunch of other different types of bands in that genre. And he also mixed our remixes, Fear is the Mind Killer. So I was like, you know what? So I had to convince the record company to let me fire Colin and to give me more money to get Greg Reilly and Reese Fulber into Los Angeles to mix the album. And it took a lot of convincing, but it worked. And my idea worked. And so mm-hmm. we brought Colin, I'm sorry, we brought Greg, Greg Reilly and Reese Fulber to LA. They started the mixing on the record. If anybody wants to see the mixing of that record, they could go to my Patreon page, Patreon Dino Cazares, and you could see there's a three series of like four different songs where you can hear us mixing that album. I literally started to cry after we mixed the first song. I was like, fuck, and that was Zero Signal. Okay. But so, like, well, regardless of who did it, like that, uh, that mix to me is like the first really like modern metal mix the way we think of it now. Correct. It was definitely ahead of its time. You know, we were, you know, sampling drums at that time. You know, we were putting the keyboards in the forefront. Uh, you know, we were editing all the noises out that were, you know, uh, in the guitars or bass. That or like whatever. super tightly gated sound that everyone uses now. Totally. Yeah. It definitely set the standard. Yeah. I mean, you so, listen to, I mean, especially like even as early as like Sold a New Machine, but I would say like to me, the, the vision really came together on uh, D manufacturer. I would say it was there earlier, but like, that's where it really came together. Like you, you, you think about what modern metal is now and there's like so much of it was like pioneered on that album, the mix, you know, like you said, the arrangement of like the kicks and the syncopated guitars, like your guitar tone, the good cop, bad cop vocals. I mean, it's like really is the template for pretty much everything we think of as modern metal now. Correct. And, uh, you know, when down we tuning also. Yep. Down tuning. Yeah. I was doing the down tuning thing way back, you know, being influenced by Godflesh and a lot of the early carcass and, 
you know, uh, tuning their guitars down to B and stuff like that. So I was really into it back then. And uh, yeah, every band I was in, we tuned down, you know. How do you feel, you know, kind of, I, I mean, it's not that you don't get any credit, but I don't think you get as much credit as you probably should. Uh, is that a sore spot for you or just kind of the way the cookie crumbles? It's a little bit of both. You know what I mean? I wouldn't say it's a sore, sore spot, but it does. When we don't get the credit for the good cop, bad cop, yeah, that's a bigger sore spot, right? Okay. And then like the syncopated guitars and drums, a lot of people credit Meshuggah because Meshuggah, they just, just they discovered Meshuggah in 2008, yeah. 2008. Yeah, exactly. When Obzan right? came out. Sure. There's, yeah, when Obzan came out. What was that, 2008? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of people discovered them on them and they pretty much shifted the whole genre into that style. And Kinda good for like them, what, but you guys were doing it quite a bit earlier. Yeah. And then kind of like how Korn did back in the, you know, mid to late nineties where everybody wanted to play those kind of guitars and tune down right. and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. We were kind of like, we just never got that kind of attention for some reason. I don't know why, but we just never got that. I don't know. Right. You know, some people, of course we have some diehard fans. that will be like, fuck yeah, you know, Fear Factory did it all. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, a lot of people, even there's bands now that don't really know where it came from, but that Definitely. are doing it now. Because bands that we influenced back then were doing it that they were influenced by. You know what I mean? So Yeah. It, it's really strange how, uh, you know, history is revised and certain bands kind of become more and less relevant. Like, for example, nobody talks about Deicide now, um, which is weird because, like, I mean, you know how hype Deicide was in, like, 94, you know, 92. Yeah. yeah, they were, like, the fucking kings. Like, they were the hypest band in death metal, and nobody cares about them now, really. I guess. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, they, they, I, they, I think they, DSI's great, but they, they, it's just, they don't do, have hype now. They still do decent when they play shows. You know what I mean? They I'm still- sure they do. But like when I talk to kids, like nobody, nobody talks about DSI now. I would say Morbid Angel, like people certainly know who they are, but like because the Kardashians. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I don't think Morbid Angel really has the kind of currency that, in my opinion, that they should. Like people laugh at me when I say Morbid Angel is underrated, but like, you know, it's not the death metal band that I hear like the younger generation talk about. Um, uh, you know, just is what it is. But uh, I think it's kind of strange how it works. One of the most sickest death metal bands that ever came out. Pete Sandoval was amazing. Uh, yep. Trey, Trey's riffs were killer. And David Vincent to me had one of the best uh, death metal vocals out there. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That yeah. were heavy, you know, sometimes guttural, but mainly just heavy, aggressive, and you can understand his words. Yep. Yeah, he was an actual vocalist, not just like a dude gurgling like a lot of those bands did. Correct. And and Trey was using, you know, seven string guitars way back then. You know what I mean? Uh, before me or Korn even existed, you know, Trey yeah. was using the seven string guitars. Uh, and Pete Sandoval coming from Terrorizer, one of the best, tightest, you know, uh, uh, grindcore, death metal, punk drummers you could think of. He was just, he was the shit. And we definitely worship Pete Sandoval like crazy because everybody was, did yeah yeah uh, we also worshiped gene hoagland too like when we were first starting out we were really into gene hoagland and and uh uh pete sandoval those are my like my two favorite drummers way back in the day like that and uh that was very influence, influential on some parts of fear factory you'll never yeah, hear Gene it, had but, that very super tight syncopated style that you hear a lot of in fear factory yeah well it wasn't necessarily just the double kicks it was like what it was was like he had double rides Double right, Chinas, right. 
double yeah. china's things like that pete was just tight as fuck when it came to you know doing blast beats i mean he's one of the tightest like non-edited yeah. you know blast beats you know what i mean right not edited back then you know it's like ah, you know it's fucking because nowadays how, you how did you even do that shit with tape i mean i'm assuming that was tape that you did those early records yeah we did it all with tape how we did just, you even do that level of like precision and stuff with tape punch, punch it yeah that was before we were sampling anything you know before we were, before you can actually edit and move things around um yeah. just rehearse me and raymond rehearsed every day what an five, idea five days a week me and him rehearsed every day I mean, no. even even with that, like it's hard to believe that you could be that tight on. Well, I mean, Mashuga played that tight to tape too, you know. Yeah, and then we just, you know, you can always punch in. You fuck up, you punch in. It's easy. Yeah, I remember uh, I was uh, talking to uh, Sean Reiner from Cynic, uh, rest in peace, and he was saying that you know they did uh, Focus with no click track, uh, basically like live in the studio because that's just the way it was done. And like, if apparently like if you map it out, the tempo kind of shifts all over the place and stuff, it's just, it's, it's wild to me. You know, I only know recording in the digital era cause that's when I learned how to do it. It's, it's literally hard for me to comprehend how anybody could play that kind of music to tape. Well, let me tell you something funny. So solve a new machine, no click track. You know, obviously you can hear it. It's all over the place. Pure energy. It's great. Yeah. You manufacture all click track, but we'll, but when we did the click track, everything was at one tempo. Every song was at its tempo, right? Right. So everybody thought it, it was a drum machine. And everybody thought, oh, you just sampled everything, but we couldn't right. at the time, whatever. But but anyway, so when we went in to do obsolete, we're like, okay, we're going to use click track. But what we're going to do is during the demo, we recorded the song, right? With no click track. And then we mapped it out to what how Raymond felt on the drums. So it was up and down, up and down, up and down. Yeah. So we left that. That was the that was the the the, the temple uh, the temple map for the song, the click track. And then we like, okay, no, we're not going to cut out anything. You know, we're not going to cut out the little noises. We're going to leave the little noises. We wanted the record to sound as natural as possible, but we're using the best technology as possible at the same time. Yeah. So that's what we did. And as far as like his drums, because it always focuses around the drums. You can always tell when drums are fake. Yep. right symbols and certain hits and blah blah um so what we did is we sampled his snare and we sampled his natural kick drum his natural toms and we used those natural tones as the samples and then used right. the rooms as they were yeah for instance a song like edge crusher we kept the natural snare and you can hear the ring on that song boing Boom, right, boom. right. That that so, real '90s like ringing. I love those snares. Yeah, even it even goes back to the colors of the artwork on the record. For instance, D Manufacture. We want it to be cold looking. You know, that's why you see a lot of blues and some mm -hmm. some purples in there and stuff like that. On Obsolete, we want it to be more earthy looking, more natural. So that's why the record brown. Makes sense. Yeah, so well, we wanted that to match the sound to match the artwork. Uh, another thing that I correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I remember you being pretty early to like ant modelers and stuff, you know, with like using the pod and stuff like that. Uh, is that, is that true? Am I right? right. Very true. Uh, in 1998, um, I got my Marshall head stolen at a concert. Well, actually parked outside of a hotel before a concert and they stole the whole truck. They stole all our gear. So 
1999, that January during the NAM convention. I went to Guitar Center before that. And I tried out a bunch of amps. I'm like, look, I'm going to go to NAM and try to get me a new endorsement. I'm going to go to the Guitar Center and try out all these new amps. Well, there was one called Line 6. And it was uh, it had a solid-state power amp, but it was a profiled amp tone in there. And I was like, wow. And the way it reacted, the stop, start, and you know, no noise, you know, none of that stuff, no tubes. There was no mm-hmm. noise. So I was like, this is this is amazing. So when I got to NAM convention, I went to this little little booth, little company called Line Six, and they had these pods and they had the heads. They had I didn't comp- know they had a, I remember the old like red kidney bean pod. Yeah. I didn't know they had heads back then. Yeah, they had a head, it was called a flex tongue. <laughs> um, and then they had a, a combo amp. And I was like, this is it. This is it. So I talked to the company, a guy named Tim Godwin signed me up right away. And then boom. And then um, we did it. I did a tour. I did a couple of tours with the head. Then they came out with the rack. Then I mm-hmm. went to the rack. And then I was using a power amp with it to set to, to use speakers on stage in 1999. But then I was like, they, you know, they had obviously two outs. And so we, we just plugged in straight to the house. And my sound guy was like, that sounds better. And I was like, wow. And we put it through the PA, I'm sorry, to the monitors. And it sounded better coming to my monitors. So we got rid of the cabs in 99. You know exactly what you're going to get every night. And you don't have to fuck around with all that. And I could I could take that little three-space rack, go to Europe with it, plug it in, boom, there. I'm surprised that you were able to get such a good sound out of those like OG pods. But I guess that just sort of proves that tone is in the hands. Um, <laughs> and, people and, don't like to hear that, but it's true. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously it's gotten better and better over the years. You got Kempers and Axe Effects and Neural DSPs and all kinds of stuff now. Yeah. I mean, you know, another John from Monuments who's fucking amazing. He was using a HD pod or whatever for years. I mean, it's like put John through a fucking PV bandit and it's going to sound great because it's John. Listen, every genre has a band that's really big and then everybody follows follows that. Whether it's tone, style, for instance, corn, you know what I mean? For a while, those jump jump riffs just got fucking. Right, right. Everybody was doing it and got got played out. Right yeah. now, to me, is like the tone that Mashuga brought. You know, nothing against Mashuga. Right. Now that everybody's doing it, it's like, oh, do I have to hear another degen? It's like T Pain said, we already have the shit. Yeah. Give us some new shit. Correct, and everybody's doing the same tone, and it's just like it gets boring after a while. Well, what I'm hoping comes back. I'm I'm into '90s solid state shit, like the Rocktron Chameleon and. Like that stuff. I'm into that like Jun Jun, like super scooped nineties kind of sound. I want that to come back. <laughs> All right. The next uh Asasino record, you'll hear it. Okay. Your Rocktron Piranha. <laughs> with um, the yeah. I had, I had neon green uh, LTD. Yep. That's what I'm I'm actually surprised you're able to get the tones that you did out of a Marshall. I would have thought you'd be playing like Mesas or something back then. No, uh, yeah, a lot of people were using bases and 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 fifty one fifties. Yeah, uh, back then, you know, with a tube screamer. And I was like, I got to get my own sound. You know, I had this Marshall that I had for for a long time, and uh, I had it modified. And I took it to this guy, and I said, Hey, I want this amp to sound like the first Van Halen record. He goes, All right, no problem. And he did it, and it sounded like the first Van Halen record. And I was like, Fuck yeah! And then um. It got stolen, and I just recently got it back. Nice. What uh, What are you playing these days, like uh, with Soulfly, for example? Um, I was using just my Kemper. Uh, okay. With, with my patches that I make. 
it's, 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 it's not sexy anymore. Like you can't, uh, you can't put a cool diagram on the guitar sites anymore. You're just like, Oh, I just got the Kemper profile of my own amp from three years ago. That's it. And if, also if they want some of my profiles, they could go to my Patreon as well and they can okay. download them as well. Okay. There you go. Cool. Yeah. I've, uh, the, the Kemper is a cool thing, but that again, really proves how much tone is in the hands. Uh, because you know, uh, I don't want to dissuade anybody from from uh, subscribing to your Patreon. You should do it so you can see but what I mean. But I I use campers because I don't have to take my amps anymore because I don't want my amps to get stolen yeah. or damaged or whatever. So I just take the campers because now you can keep everything on a USB stick. And if they get stolen, whatever, just get another camper and pop in your tones. You, you, you load in Dino's tone is not going to make you sound like Dino. You should do <laughs> it anyway just to see it. You'll learn something from it. But Remember, I had AL reamp some of my guitars once with a tone from like Emotionless and White record that had an amazing tone. Mm-hmm. And I was like, dude, I think you did something wrong. Like, this sounds horrible. And he's like, nope. <laughs> like, I don't understand. He's just like, yeah, that's you, buddy. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it depends. You know, sometimes I've reamped uh, uh, my guitar uh, with another amps and it doesn't, it doesn't always sound the same because sometimes you're not playing to that amp. You're not playing right, with that amp. Right. 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 You're playing with whatever you record with. And so you kind of it's kind of hard to explain. You kind of adjust. We're going to choke up differently depending on how much sustain there is, for example. Correct. Correct. Exactly. So then you yeah. put on another app and it just doesn't work. But you should still go subscribe to Dino's Patreon. Go get his <laughs> camper profiles. Give him a shot. They, they, You never know. It could be the thing you've been looking for. So you should try it. But you should also. You should practice. You should listen to how Dino plays and you should practice. You should copy how he plays and you should remember what he said about practicing so they can play that tightly to tape. That is what you should do. And then go load his Kemper profiles and that's when the <laughs> magic will happen. Yeah, we uh, on, on, there's one called Reindustrialized. It's one of my tones on there. That's that's my favorite one right now. Okay, cool. Well, uh, and we'll, we'll drop a link to that uh, in the chat as well and in the show notes. What do we have here? Uh, been a fear factor. This is from uh, Breddington from Slash. I've been a Fear Factory's fan since I was 10. I'm now 40. I have no question. I just wanted to say that Fear Factory's music and Dino's influence on the genre has meant a lot to my life. Thank you. Uh, from the Toilet Zone, how long did the Macarena cover take to do? And also tell him that the Macarena cover is really funny. <laughs> yeah, we did the Macarena cover. It's, it's basically about smoking weed. It's, uh, it's uh, Brujeria did that one. Um, yeah, go look it up on YouTube. It's hilarious. Uh, from, uh, I'm a tarts. I'm, I'm so bad. People have weird names. It's hard for me to read them. Uh, I'm, I'm a arts and something like that. After hearing about your fallout with Ross Robinson in 91, what was it like to work with him on the self-titled Soulfly record? Oh, we became friends after that. Um, it, it basically, uh, the judge pretty much said, look, Ross, you own the master recordings, but you can't release them without the band's consent. So, and then we own the songs, so we can go and re-record the songs. We didn't really hate them or nothing like There's that. There's no beef. Yeah, it was no beef. It's just business stuff, right? It was pretty much our an introduction to the music world. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he's we've been friends ever since. Um, got it. And he's really cool, and I got to sit in on uh the soulfly record when i did eye for an eye recorded that song with max um and also on a limp biscuit record uh, the first limp biscuit record as well nothing i really want to talk about but yeah <laughs> oh I, I didn't know that um somebody in the chat uh vvv venlo gang uh once uh, he is he's asked several times to tell dino i love him 
He's he's made this clear. <laughs> he wanted to pass the message along. Well, uh, I'll send you some bro love back. Okay. Uh, Master Thrash says, I have heard that he makes a damn good Chili Verde from an unnamed source. No, I don't make any Chili Verde. That's more of a Texas thing, I think, or an Albuquerque thing. But uh, yeah, I, I like Chili Verde, but I don't make it. Fake news. Fake news. Uh, from Orkin Bob, does Dino have any opinions on who is currently pioneering anything, if anyone? Hmm. Good question. Uh, not that I can think of at the moment. Can you? You know, I, I mean, if we're talking about in the realm of metal, uh, I would say, you know, that band Igor is pretty cool. Have you heard them? No. <laughs> uh, th- they're pretty cool. It's Igor with three R's. They're pretty cool. And their videos are really cool, too. Gosh, I don't know. Uh, I, I think I, I know like, who you're talking about. Yeah, they're from somewhere in Eastern Europe. I'm not sure. Sweden, uh, maybe? Some, yeah, maybe Finland? so. Maybe, maybe so. I don't know. But uh, they're pretty cool. I heard uh, you talk about Spearbox the other day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Spearbox. I don't know if I would say Spearbox is pioneering anything. There's a, there's, I think there's, just, there's a couple of things you forgot in your, you were saying how they became successful. Oh, tell me. What did yeah, I forget? a couple of things you forgot. One of them was, I think Ginger opened the door for, for them and that genre and that that's probably particular, true particular genre ginger made it cool right mm-hmm. uh and secondly you're forgetting sirius xm jose Mangin. That, really, that is true i i did forget that because i do not listen to any of that that i i oftentimes sort of underestimate the value of sirius and you're very right don't get me wrong the song's amazing the first song they put out um but it was jose who really championed that band and then also took him over into octane you know and then boom, it just blew up. That is a good point. Well, I'd be interested to hear uh when you have when you have somebody behind you like that, they also sign with a pretty big management company as well, too. That's really helping them out. Yeah. I, tell me, tell me, I, I assume you know Jose and the Octane kind of world. Uh I have not I haven't owned a radio or anything like that in like 20 years. So I'm like mm-hmm. very disconnected from the radio world. Uh I would imagine you guys probably get a decent amount of support for that. Uh, from from them, what has that done for you guys, and what am I missing about kind of the value of radio? I think you're missing the value of uh, a radio, uh, online radio, uh, or sorry, not online radio, digital radio, because um, it really gives people a a platform, right? Bands like Cannibal Corpse, bands like every underground death metal band that you could think of are now actually making some sort of an income. See, I, a lot of people talked a lot of shit about Spotify and, and you know, the, the money that we were getting from Spotify and stuff like that. A lot of people talked a lot of crap. But at the same time, it gave uh, everybody, and I mean everybody in every genre, a platform now to get people to listen to your music and actually make some income. Whether it's five bucks or $5,000 a month, you're making income. And if, and if you're a band like Deicide or Cannibal Corpse like, to have a million subscribers, that's or a million listeners, that's pretty fucking good because yeah. you're, gonna, you're actually going to be making some money. Now, that's one thing that people forget. that it, when, when before, when Fear Factory came out, modern rock radio was completely different. There was no heavier bands like Five Finger Death Punch with double bass. You know, you know uh, the closest thing you got was not even Metallica was really on modern rock radio as much um back then so there was really no outlet for us there was no online streaming where we can make an income at all but now there is 
So if you're fucking a band called Vomit, fucking yeah, Vomit Intros or whatever, Ass Vomit, whatever, you can actually you have potential to make some money on online streaming. Believe it or not, you know what I mean. So it's given us a little bit of a platform to make an income. So where Jose comes in, Jose plays all those bands, and he gives those bands a shot to where maybe they might get a fan or a new listener that might want to go to their Spotify or wherever they stream music and listen to it and let that, that band can have, you know, a check at the end of the month. Yeah. Well, so shout out to Jose. I, I, I would say that's true. That's something I realized in the past couple of years I have kind of underestimated is, uh, you know, everything you just said. So shout because, out to Jose and everyone else over there. Yeah. They're, they're the biggest and they also influence other stations to play heavier music as well. You know, especially Octane. Octane is where, you know, you really see a difference. Question from Concert Crap. Which three songs would be best to encompass Fear Factory for a noob to the band? Ooh. <laughs> Definitely. Well, my favorite would be South by Sister. So something for sure off D-Manufacture. Um, if it was, was going to be obsolete, I would either say Shock or Resurrection. Uh, Lynchpin which is our most streamed song. Um, it's a Good very one. big song. And then uh, then everything else to follow. You know what I mean? My recommendation is Sangre de Ninos, although <laughs> <laughs> not, not the one for most people, but it's one of my favorites. Yeah. And then we, you know, we, we also re-recorded it, which is going to be on the special packaging for the re-release of Mechanized Record. Oh, cool. Um, when's that coming out? Not till next year. Got it. Okay. We'll be excited to hear that. I hope you understand my point what i was talking about you know for you know online streaming for you know artists like you know heavier artists to actually make something you know what i mean sure whereas before we didn't we couldn't make anything because we we weren't playing at the radio at all yeah and just to reach people i mean you know back in uh back in our day uh you know you're selling demos and seven inches and shit through the mail uh which was cool but like you were thrilled if you sold 500 of them you know, and you still probably had 1500 of them sitting in your fucking bedroom, you know? Uh, so the, the fact that you can reach the entire fucking world is pretty amazing. Yes, exactly. But also it's, it's very impossible to make money from that as well, too. I know lots of people like lots and lots and lots of people, mostly like solo artists, but I know tons of people that make a full-time living off of Spotify and they're not big. Like, uh, the rapper Fatsy that I talked about, I did a podcast with him. Last I looked, he had like 50, 60,000 listeners on Spotify, which is certainly respectable, but that's something crazy. Uh, and he's made a full-time living off of music for like four years now or something. Yeah. But, you know, also just, so you know, that some people actually uh, do their tour based off where they're big on Spotify because you can mm-hmm. actually go region to region, you know. Um, and also, it also doesn't mean because you have 2 million, two million listeners on Spotify doesn't necessarily mean those people are going to buy tickets to go to your show. You have 2 million fans. Yeah. So many of those, so many of those, like, uh, I guess I'll call them like 2000s butt rock bands has still have like 3 million monthly listeners on Spotify because they have one hit song from 2001 that, you know, keeps getting on playlists and stuff. But then you go see their shows and they're playing to, you know, 42 people at some like bar and grill uh in Pensacola. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard of some bands arguing with promoters saying, like they're saying, well, why are you only giving us, you know, 1500 bucks to play a show? We got 2 million listeners on Spotify. He goes, yeah, but you only sold 50 tickets. Right. This isn't Spotify. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see that. I see people arguing that all the time, all the time. Yeah. Interesting. 
Uh, did you ever revisit Andreas Kisser and rub the lower tuning bit back at him? I don't know what that oh, is. Oh, yeah, many, many, many times, many times. Tell, yeah. tell me, what, what was that? Okay, back in 1991, I was hanging out with them when they were doing the video for Arise. And I was hanging out with them, partying with them. And um, Andreas... This is know, Andreas from Sepultura. Andreas from Sepultura had heard uh, some, of, some of my songs. Um, and he goes, why do you tune down? You don't have to tune down to be heavy. That's what he was giving me shit Com- about that. Common thing people said back then. He, yeah, he was giving me shit about that. But then, you know what? 10 years later, when they did Roots, the thing was heavy. Right, right, right. They tuned down. Yeah. Yeah, with Ross. Yeah. Taking, taking the Fear Factory but playbook. I don't think they did it because of Ross. I think they did it because... Uh, oh, yeah. Another funny thing is that when Ross did our record, it was called Concrete. In 91, he did our record. Um, he actually used that demo to shop to other bands, his production deals, and blah, blah, blah. And one of those bands was called Corn. A uh, few people have probably heard of him. I, I guess they, <laughs> they went on to do some, some big things from what I've heard. Um, last question I have is... Uh, uh, Patreon, tell me about like what's going on with that and kind of what made you choose to adopt that. How long you've been on there? Like, tell me about that. Well, because a lot of people are saying, Hey, do you give online lessons? Uh, do you have any cool guitar instructional videos? Do you have this and that? I'm like, well, I, I don't, but I probably should do it. And so I started doing it. Um, well, obviously, obviously because of COVID, we had a lot of downtime. So I started doing it uh, there and uh, people started to love it. And so I just, kept doing it and then i started then i realized wow i got this whole dvd of behind the scenes footage of mixing d manufacture so i did a three-part series and i put it on there cool yeah i think it's a great idea i i feel like i don't see any reason why any artist wouldn't you know with any kind of a decent following wouldn't have a patreon uh some people don't have time or some people are big enough that they don't they don't need it or well sure or that's yeah how they feel yeah yeah. Um, if you don't need it, that's cool. But anybody that wants money. Well, some people are making enough money that yeah. they don't need it. You know what I mean? Or they're True. making, or they're, they're busy doing other things, making money than having to do that. Yeah. You know fair enough. Mean? Or some people just don't, don't want to deal with other, other people, whether it's, you know, teaching face to on FaceTime or whatever. Some people just don't want to deal with it. I get it. I get it. Sometimes I get, I get in that vibe too, but obviously a guy like you, you make a career out of this, correct? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. This is your thing. You know how to talk. Try. Not a lot of people know how to. Not a lot of know how to people explain what you explain. You know what I mean? So yeah. Well, I've turned all that useless knowledge about excruciating terror into a weird job. You're like the the Matt Pinfield of the 2021s. A a lot of people tell me that. Um, Really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's hilarious. I was just making a joke. No, a lot of people tell me that, which is cool. I mean, I I I loved MTV back in like the 90s. It was fucking awesome. That's how I discovered. I heard suicidal tendencies on MTV in 1990. And like, that was how I got into all this stuff. So, uh, you know, if that's me, I'm, I'm cool with that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Cause it's, it's great. It's very informative. Cool. I appreciate it. Uh, I will let you go. Thank you very much for your time. And, uh, I'll send you a link when this is up. Thank you very much, man. And it's a Take pleasure and honor to talk to you. And, uh, Hopefully this won't be the last time. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. 
Second thing you can do if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talk to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.